0: Hey there, welcome to the Victory Cigar Podcast. My name is Connor and I'm the host of this show. You are listening to episode number one, so everything might be a little rough as we get used to doing the show, but you can expect a variety of discussions about sports. Major League Baseball, the National Football League, the National Basketball Association, the National Hockey League, and NASCAR Racing will be the focus of the show. I have found that over the years I have plenty to say in the world of sports, and what better way to document my thoughts and opinions on current events, historical debates, and suggestions for the future in sports leagues that I have so much love for than to just ramble on for an hour or so a week. Welcome to the show, and let's get into it. So first off here, we're going to talk about the NFL playoffs and the Super Bowl coming up here. Um, the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about was my thoughts on the first several rounds of the NFL playoffs this season. Um, we had the 49ers beat the Seahawks um, on the NFC side of things in the wild card round. The Giants prevail over the Vikings. The Cowboys beat the Buccaneers. Um, and over on the AFC side of things, we had the Bills defeat the Dolphins. Uh, the Bengals get by the Ravens. And the Jaguars uh, complete in seemingly impossible comeback over the chargers um in uh in the wild card round uh in the divisional round the chiefs prevailed over the jaguars but of course the patrick mahomes ankle injury came into play there the eagles flattened the giants and as a giants fan of course i was just enjoying the ride uh when they came up against the eagles i figured that uh the fun was probably just about over had a little bit of hope that maybe they could get it together for their third meeting of the season, but just didn't really work out that way. Uh, the Bengals uh, really thoroughly beat the Bills in that uh, divisional round um, against Buffalo at home, which was pretty pretty unbelievable. The 49ers flattened the Cowboys. Uh, I know the final score was 19-12, to but the Cowboys watching that game uh, they never felt as though they were seriously competing it really didn't feel as close as that final score would really indicate then on to the conference championship uh the eagles took down the 49ers uh in you know beat down fashion as a result of the 49ers losing Brock Purdy on the very first drive, starting quarterback, their third quarterback of the year. They had to go to Josh Johnson, a fourth-string, 10-year, 11-year veteran. That did not go well. He was knocked out of the game in the third quarter with a concussion. So the Eagles were basically playing the 49ers without a quarterback. And, I mean, you could really make the argument that they were playing them without a quarterback quarterback uh, from the very first drive, really. Um, Purdy was going to be their their best chance. Josh Johnson was never going to get that done. The Eagles really just fortunate that that happened. And I'm not saying that injuries are a good thing. They are not. Um, and that was very apparent there. The NFL is going to have to revisit the rule about carrying a third emergency quarterback the way that they used to for years and years and years. I think for almost 30 years going back to the 80s um, up until about 10 years ago. I think they got rid of that rule, but they're going to have to, they're going to have to reconsider that because that was just pitiful. Realistically, the Eagles were, were a better team overall um, because for a little bit more of a balanced situation on offense and defense, um, the 49ers defense is very strong, and Purdy had played well, but you just can't match what what Philadelphia was going to bring on that side of the table. I, I think that with Purdy healthy, that's uh, a lot more of a game, and most certainly could have gone the 49ers way, but I, I'd still would have said the Eagles probably come out on top on that. But there, you know, there's really no way to know now. Um, and that was just a that's just a mess. Feel terrible uh, for Forty ers fans, really, because you you play hard all year, and your backup, your your third string steps in, plays great. The team rallies around him, and and they get all the way to the conference championship, and are unable to. They have no chance. You know, you lose your you lose your at that point starting quarterback, and that's it the backup is not very well suited, then the backup gets knocked out. So Purdy has to come back in and hand the ball off. He, he was incapable of throwing. He he tore his UCL in his elbow, Uh common injury, of course, in baseball. Tommy John surgery, nicknamed as such, due to the prevalence of that among pitchers in uh, baseball. Hope Purdy is able to get back um, to full health and to the NFL and everything. He... UCL injuries are not the, even in baseball, are not the career-ending death sentence, if you will, that they used to be. The advancements in medical uh, technology and the surgery, the procedure have gotten so good that it's really just a, well, uh, I mean, overall, I'm not saying it's like this for everybody, but uh, for a lot of guys... It's not great news that you want to hear, but at the same time, it's really just, well, okay, nine months, a year, and you'll probably be back, and your elbow will probably be stronger these days. It's kind of like ACL recovery over the last decade or so. There was a time where a torn ACL was just, oh, no, they're going to be nowhere near where they used to be, and then now... They're coming back stronger. More people are coming back uh, stronger. Maybe not as explosive. That's still where where that the ACL injury comes in in that same vein. it's You lose some explosiveness, but you really do. These guys are gaining strength in that leg and in that knee, but you, you sort of lose some of the explosiveness. But anyway, <laughs> uh, unfortunate for the 49ers to have gotten that far and to have just a series of unfortunate events unfold there. Chiefs beat the Bengals. That was a controversial game. Um many people thought that the referees were on the side of the Chiefs. And um if you look at if you looked at just the fourth quarter you'd go, well, it seemed like every call was going to the Chiefs. Well, the Bengals were committing the penalties. And I say this fairly unbiased, I like Joe Burrow, I like Patrick Mahomes. Um I, I you know, I I don't really have any ill will towards either of those teams and I don't really have any extreme favoritism towards either of those teams or anything either the way that I saw it the Chiefs had a couple of touchdowns wiped off the board early from sort of ticky-tack calls they had in the third quarter a great punt return that got called back on kind of a ticky-tack call that you know, that backs them all the way up. They get a big completion. You get a taunting penalty that backs up 15 yards off that big completion that, you know, if you ask me, you'll hear it as we cover the NFL more next season and everything too. But I think taunting is just the most ridiculous call um, that you, that is in football. I mean, to, for that to be – well, let me rephrase. For that to be a 15-yard personal foul penalty – in the NFL is ridiculous. These are grown men. If you're going to penalize it, which I don't even think you should, but if you are going to penalize it, five yards. I mean, come on. It's, it's a lineman for Kansas City kind of did a little like, ha ah, ha ha, look at me, kind of dance towards one of the Bengals players after that big completion. And that drew 15 yards. I mean, that is ridiculous. It, that is a, It's a non-football play. It has nothing to do with what is going on on the field. So if you ask me, I think 15 yards for a taunting penalty is is asinine. So that happened there. That backed him all the way up. Then we had the Mahomes fumble, um, and Kansas City was looking like they were going to go put it away on that drive, kind of put it out of reach because it was a very close game. But uh, Cincinnati took the ball about midfield, went down, scored. And so, you know, Ah, the NFL's favoring the Chiefs. They love the Chiefs. Et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there really isn't much to argue, if you ask me, in the from the fourth quarter of that game. I watched every minute of that game. I there really isn't much to argue for that. I mean, you can say, ah, oh, well, that, that fifteen yards that gave it to him at the end. He I mean, he did it. The that Bengals that Bengals player did it. He did it. Um he pushed Mahomes, had two feet out of bounds, was was a clean three, four yards out of bounds. He pushed him in the back. I mean, you simply cannot, you have to be more disciplined than that. You cannot touch the quarterback. In this day and age, especially, that quarterback is out of bounds. I mean, you might have, I, and trust me, I am totally for like, hey, they're playing football, and I think there's a lot of really BS roughing the passer stuff and that the quarterbacks are very well protected, and I don't always agree with that. But that's one of those things where really it wouldn't have mattered whether that was a quarterback, a running back, a wide receiver, the fullback, a punt returner. It doesn't matter. If that guy was that far out of bounds and got shoved two hands in the back like that, it's going to get called, and especially if it's the quarterback. And I don't care if that was Patrick Mahomes or if it was Josh Johnson that would have got called. And so I really think that that's just kind of coping for Cincinnati. Cincinnati did not play well. Joe Burrow did not play that well. Two interceptions. You can argue the last one was kind of an arm punt sort of thing, but and it was a great play by the the Kansas City uh, defensive back really. That one really wasn't on Burrow. The first one was on Burrow. Second one, you could say, well, kind of an arm punt and the defender made a great play. But still it's a turnover it It prevents the special teams from being able to try to pin them back deeper, maybe at doing their job and everything. burrow was just not that great. Kansas City did a pretty good job on jamar Chase. I think they held him under a hundred yards i seventy six yards. I believe the Cincinnati, I, I just I just don't see that. They could go, well, they didn't call this. They didn't do that. They gave them this call. I think that overall, if that last play didn't happen, you might have seen Chiefs fans, that last personal foul, you might have seen Chiefs fans that thought that the game was officiated against them. Arguably all game, I, I kind of thought Kansas City was getting shafted a little bit, if you ask me, but... Uh, it kind of balanced out towards the end because Kansas City finally got some calls in their favor, but but overall, um, I think it was a poorly officiated game overall, and that's, I mean, that's not good for anybody, but I think it was kind of a poorly officiated game overall. I do not think the Bengals got, uh, got screwed. I think that's their fans kind of coping uh, a little bit, but anyway, we get to the Super Bowl. It's Chiefs. It's Eagles. Now in this breakdown I'm going to sound like a salty Giants fan. I am. Okay, so you you can feel free to say you're just a salty Giants fan. That's that's fair. Because there's no other way for it to sound because they're a division rival and they beat us in the playoffs, but I swear I'd be saying this if I was a a Arizona Cardinals fan. You know, I would it, it doesn't matter. I'd be saying this if I was a Broncos fan. I'd be saying the same thing. Um Eagles had a cakewalk to the Super Bowl. Let's just be real about that. And I wouldn't be complaining if I, if it was my team. If it was the Giants had a cakewalk, absolutely not. I would not be complaining about that one bit. And Eagles fans have every right to celebrate their trip to the Super Bowl. They played the games that were on their schedule. I mean, that's what it comes down to. That's the truth. Every year, there's there's guys that get through with some pretty easy schedules. But they played who was in front of them. And they beat who was in front of them. And that's you know, that's just the way it goes. But if we are just being real about the situation, it was a pretty easy, I can't think of an easier run to the Super Bowl in recent memory, to be completely honest with you. They played a real easy schedule this year. They had a soft schedule. I don't think that, that is that you can even dispute that at, at any juncture. They had a very easy schedule this season. But they won the games. You can't take that away from them. The NFL is—it's it's, you have to week in, week out. I mean, look at the Broncos. People thought that was going to be a heck of a better team than it was, and it sure, sure didn't turn out that way. Um, even if you've got the guys on the field, you got to execute. They did. I can't take that away from them. But they did have an easy schedule. Okay, they—they they did um, the playoffs. They had it very easy in the playoffs. The Giants, my beloved Giants, they won more games in the regular season than I expected them to or that anybody else expected them to this year. They won a playoff game. I was ecstatic. I knew this team was not going to the Super Bowl, obviously. The Giants played, their defense kind of outplayed their A grade um, in the back half of the season. Um, Daniel Jones I, was good this year. I I don't think he was great. I don't think he was elite. You know, he didn't blow my mind, but he was good. He did everything, and and that's something I think that NFL fans don't keep in mind enough when judging a quarterback in particular is that I don't think you'll find a Giants fan that's going to say that they think Daniel Jones is elite. You're not going to have a Giants fan tell you that, that Daniel Jones is on the level of Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen or Joe Burrow. Uh, or you know in the past are are the back-to-back MVP Aaron Rodgers and you you're not going to have that though Rodgers didn't you know didn't have a great year this year but you're not going to have that you're not going to have I don't think any Giants fan out there tell you that but it's also unfair to call Daniel Jones trash he had a good year all they asked him to do was to execute the running game and they asked him to make certain throws you know, they graded him and judged him and they thought they ran plays in the passing game that they thought he could make. And he went out there and made them. He had five interceptions on the season. You know, that that's huge. I mean, that's, that's good play. That's good quarterback play. Whether you're a guy that is throwing it 40 times a game or 20 times a game, it that's good quarterback play to only turn the ball over five times when you make all 17 starts. Um, well, I'm, I'm sorry, there were probably some fumbles in there, and I don't have the numbers on that at the moment, but the I know that overall he only he cut the fumbles down big time, too. Um, and he cut the interceptions down big time. I really only can remember one or two in particular of his interceptions that were just kind of like, Ew, that was a bad throw. And there was a lot more of that in years past. He played much better this season. But going back to the point about the Eagles, the Uh, my Giants definitely outplayed what they were expected to do. Um, They won a playoff game against a higher-seeded team, although going into that game, I had a feeling they were going to win it because they were real close a few weeks before. They lost on a 61-yard field goal in Minnesota. They were going back to Minnesota. I thought they matched up pretty well. I thought Minnesota, much like everyone else thought, was very overrated. New York beats Minnesota, they head to the next round and play the Eagles. Well, if we're just being real, out of the entire NFL playoffs, AFC, NFC, the weakest team in the playoffs to start it off was the Buccaneers. No question. 8-9, and nine, Brady was looking every bit of 45 years old. That team was just bad. Buccaneers were bad. They were only 8-9 and nine because they were in the worst division in the NFL. I think if you put them just about anywhere else... Uh, they are not an eight-win team, and they are not a playoff team. Buccaneers were terrible. That was a perfect matchup for Dallas. Dallas, we'll get to Dallas in a minute. Dallas was very overrated this season. I live in the Dallas area, and I watch most of the games, ninety percent of the games. I am a certified hater. We'll get, we'll put that on the on deck first. To, you know, I, I'll preface that but they were very overrated this year, and they drew a Buccaneers team that was perfect for them. Um, and they beat them. Buccaneers were the worst team in the playoffs. The second worst team in the playoffs was probably the Giants, and I say that as a, as a Giants fan. It was either the Giants or the Jaguars, and really, I'd say the Jaguars were better. I'd say the Jaguars were better than the Giants, especially by this time of the year. The Jaguars were really clicking on all cylinders really nicely. Lawrence was obviously awful in the first half against uh the Chargers but he he turned it on second half and he played well against Kansas City just not well enough to beat Kansas City even with Mahomes on on one leg but New York was the second worst team versus com- compared to Tampa Bay and the Eagles were in line to play either the Giants or Buccaneers if they if either of those guys had won their games and the giants won their game. And the giants were outmatched. They were outmatched um, on both sides of the ball and they they lost that game but Philadelphia first first round bye. They get to play Giants in their first playoff game in the divisional round. They flatten them because they're playing the worst team left and I mean that's how the seeding works. That's why you play the regular season games. That's how you get there. So again, I'm not you know discounting that the Eagles did their job. It's just that I can't think of an easier route for them because then you get to the conference championship and they play the 49ers. And it's, you know, hey, maybe that's a good game. Well, not when the quarterback, the third-string quarterback, gets hurt on the first possession of the game and can no longer throw a football. And when you have to rely on a fourth-string veteran journeyman quarterback who then gets hurt early in the third quarter. So they played pretty much the entire second half against a quarterback that could not throw the ball, that physically was incapable of throwing the ball. That's not a recipe for, for success for San Francisco, and the Eagles, I mean, that's just luck. You know, at that point, there's pretty much... At that point, pretty much any other NFL team is going to win when they play a team that does not have a quarterback that can throw the football. I mean, that's, um, you know... Pretty important in the NFL to be able to throw the ball in any capacity. And when you your quarterback is not a threat to do that because they are physically incapable, uh, the game is over. So Philly, they had a pretty easy run of it. I would say just, I mean, they're in the Super Bowl, obviously, but the Chiefs are their toughest test, and I would not be surprised to see Philadelphia pull this one out in the Super Bowl, too because they're drawing a pretty banged-up Chiefs team. I know it just sounds like whining, but it's true. We'll see, because Jalen Hurts was good this year. He was not quite as good as people maybe were assuming based on the record and and all that sort of stuff. He missed some throws in these playoff games, especially against San Francisco. I I can think of a, a... several offhand that he just missed. I don't know how much that shoulder still bothering him. Jalen Hurts made big strides this year. Absolutely. He was much better this year than he was uh, previously. And if he plays the way that he does, again, this is about judging quarterback play. He doesn't have to be Patrick Mahomes. He doesn't have to be you know, prime Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady and Joe Burrow and everything. He doesn't have to be for them to have success. He made that clear this year, but all he had to do was basically the daniel jones route which was make the throws that are asked of you and don't turn the ball over he did a great job of that this year but we definitely need to pump the brakes on the you know the comparison side by side he is not the mvp this year patrick mahomes is the mvp of the nfl and the the gap between those two is enormous and i i think it's kind of wild to pretend otherwise that being said though the eagles are as far as i'm aware mostly healthy as as healthy as as they could really be the chiefs are not and that is going to be a major part of the game is when we get to sunday how good is mahomes feeling how good is that supposed problem with kelsey's back how good is he feeling The receiving core that got really beat up in that game against the Bengals. How healthy are they? How close to 100% are they? That's all going to be very big. And I could see the Eagles kind of prevailing there because the Chiefs are just not quite at 100% strength. Chiefs defense also is not great. Um, The Eagles defense is. The Eagles defense is very good. This is going to come down to whether or not, to me, the Chiefs are able to get enough stops or cause enough three points instead of seven. You know, enough field goal tries instead of touchdowns. And whether or not... Because I think Mahomes can pretty much score on anybody. uh, Anytime. With pretty much any weapons. And... Because he is so special, he is so good. I can't overstate that enough. I, he is so good. Mahomes is. I mean, maybe you get a little bit sick of all the social media posts and all the talk about him, but it really is because it's very. It reminds me very much of LeBron James, and I I don't like LeBron James as a person. I think he's got many flaws. Character flaw. I mean, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. I have plenty of flaws. But he's got plenty of flaws that make him very unlikable in the public eye. That's very understandable. Obviously, though, as a basketball player, he is incredible. I mean, his career's winding down. He's slowing down. He is not what he used to be. That is very clear. But during that prime stretch for LeBron James, especially around the time he arrived in Miami, and then his time in Cleveland, I mean, you could not make an argument for any other player in the league. And it was just foolish and and just hater-esque, if you will, to try to do so. That guy was on top of the world, he was the best in the world, and it was not close. And that is where we're at with Mahomes. He is the best quarterback in the NFL, and it is not close. And the reason, you know, I know you're sick of the social media posts and everything with him, but he is so good, and it, you really just need to be able to sit back and appreciate how good he really is and how he is changing that that position. He, he's incredible. So getting back to the Super Bowl, though, he he's the x factor for the chiefs if if he really goes if he's able to go out there in his third time in the super bowl in 5 years which is insane five straight afc championship appearances if he goes out there and puts on a clinic he doesn't turn the ball over and he is at the top of his game kansas city will win that game if mahomes is even if he's only 80% of who he normally is. Which 80% of who he is. Is still better than everybody else. They'll lose. He's going to have to be perfect. He's going to have to be precise. And he is going to have to. Be a threat. To make a play. On every single snap. Of that game. Because of how strong and healthy. The Eagles are. And how big question marks. On, on Kansas City's defense. So that's the way that I see it. I see the Eagles as being the true favorites. I believe the Lions have Kansas City as the favorites because obviously it's hard to bet against a team that's been in the Super Bowl three times in five years. Um, Would have been four times if they uh, hadn't kind of choked away that game last year against uh, Burrow and the Bengals. But it's hard to bet against them. Oh man, Th- thinking about Kansas City, it, they really could be five for five on Super Bowl appearances if D. Ford knew how to line up on sides um, against uh, New England in 2018, I think that was. But anyway, the the Eagles are in the best position to me from a just an on paper standpoint with the with the health that they have and the the way the team is set up. Now, with that being said. Patrick Mahomes, in his very first Super Bowl, so just to harken back to that and use this as an example, Patrick Mahomes, very first Super Bowl against the 49ers, as much as as special as he is and as good as he is and, and how great he was through the whole run through the season, he was nervous. I think that that cannot be argued. He was not very sharp until, I want to say, about late in the third quarter, he started to look like himself in the first Super Bowl appearance. He started to look like himself. He was not... Sharp though. He was shaky. Missing throws. You know, the stuff that he normally makes with his eyes closed. He was he was off in that first Super Bowl. He picked it up in the third and fourth quarter. They pulled off the the comeback against San Francisco. They won the Super Bowl. Against Tampa Bay in the Super Bowl. Mahomes looked good. I don't care what you look at and go. Well, he only scored this many points. And he did that. He looked good. He was running for his life. Three backup linemen starting the Super Bowl. He was running for his life. That you know that play, the famous play, running all over the field and then being tackled and throwing the ball from from a horizontal position and hitting his receiver in the face mask and having it dropped, that just summed up that entire Super Bowl. He did everything he could to survive and and keep them in that game, and everybody else just about let him down. But in particular, the line. The line really let him down. But Tampa Bay was really strong that year. D- their defense was ridiculous, and that was going to be hard to hard to match regardless. Anyway, why do I bring that up? Jalen Hurts is on this stage. He finds himself in the Super Bowl. In his second run to the playoffs, he is in the Super Bowl. So again, on paper, Eagles are healthier and they are more balanced as far as their strength goes. Kansas City's offense is better overall, but the Eagles' offense is also very good. Doesn't mean that it's bad. The Eagles' defense is very good. Kansas City's is not. Now, with that being said, though, an X factor is Hurts. Is he going to be nervous? Is he going to be poised and up to the challenge and come out looking sharp and as good as he kind of has all year? That'll be huge. Patrick Mahomes did not, in his first Super Bowl appearance, he did not come out looking good for the majority of the game. And I think that that is a very serious... Point to be considered and if Hertz is not sharp that defense can only hold for so long Kansas City's keys to the games to the game is to keep their offense keep the Eagles offense off the field they like to run those long drives a lot of play action RPOs you know running the ball they are big on that they're big on those 10 12 14 play drives that eat up six, seven, eight, nine minutes. If Kansas City, if their defense is able to step up and and Hurts is maybe rusty or not feeling it, or he's, you know, nervous here in the headlights. And Kansas City is able to keep their defense on the sidelines and keep their offense on the field and cash in when their offense is on the field. Doesn't matter whether it's three or seven. It's about if Kansas City gets out there and can score consistently, then th- that'll that be their keys to victory. The Eagles' keys to victory is Hertz needs to be sharp. He needs to not be nervous. No jelly legs for Hurts. He needs to get out there and execute. If they go out there and execute the way that they have f- through the 19 games that they have played, the Eagles will win probably fairly comfortably. I won't say blowout, but two scores, 10 points, two touchdowns. I could see that. So there you have it. I that's kind of my rundown. That that's the biggest portion of the show, really, is to talk about that. The sort of my thoughts on some of these playoff games uh leading up to the Super Bowl. Uh didn't get too in depth about about many of the others. Um the well, I guess. I guess a couple of points to talk about. I know we just went over the culmination in the Super Bowl, so that's kind of my bad for being out of order here. But another couple notes, uh, Dallas Cowboys were overrated as ever. Uh, They just continue to be overrated by everybody. Um, America's team and all that. But they beat the Buccaneers to kind of go over this quickly. Cowboys, because it's a big storyline, because they are a big team and a popular team and everything. So much like how Skip Bayless dedicates four segments per show every day of the week of the NFL season to the Cowboys. I guess I have to give them a couple of minutes here. But Dallas uh, overrated all year. Their defense was very strong early in the year, not as good in the back half of the year. I think teams kind of figured out their defense. Their defense was just all out, rushed quarterback. If you got rid of the ball quickly or had a strong running game, they were going to struggle because their secondary really is not good. Uh, their linebackers are not great at stopping the run. They've really only got one that's pretty good, and it's Van Der Esch. But overall, they were going to struggle if they were not sacking the quarterback and getting favorable fields you know, from deep punts and things like that. They were going to struggle. That offense is not very good. I do not care what the final numbers say about, oh, they scored this many points and they did this. They played a lot of bad teams this year as well. And again, when your defense sets you up into favorable field position, that's not really a measure of how good the team is at consistently going from the 20 to the end zone. When you're starting at the 40, when you're starting at the 50, whatever it is, you're getting turnovers. I mean, that's that's part of a complete football team, though. If your defense is good, uh, it starts with the defense, right? Defense wins championships, the old mantra. It starts with the defense. If you're getting put in favorable field position, all the the power to you. I'm not taking that away from them. I'm just saying, you know, pump the brakes on how good that team actually was. For example, when you're asked, like, hey, okay, you're down seven points. We need a touchdown. Here's the ball at the 20. Go get it. How good was that team really? Not very good at that. Now, especially against better defense, you know, when you're playing Indianapolis or the Texans or the Jaguars or whoever, that's a different story, but... Now, the Cowboys and Buccaneers they matched up perfectly to talk about them. Buccaneers were a team that was absolutely terrible at generating quarterback pressure. Dak Prescott is horrible under pressure. I don't think I don't think any Cowboys fan on earth would argue that with me. Um Prescott is horrible under pressure. That's just the truth. You you get pass rushers in that guy's face, he tends to make bad decisions and he's been doing it for 7 years. I've been saying that that guy is average at best for seven years, and it's it's taken all this time. But people have finally caught up to seeing that. I'm not saying he's bad; he's just average at his at his very best. At his very be- and the only times you ever see this guy at his very best are against weak defenses. That's it. You do not see this guy show up against good teams. He tends to fold under pressure a lot. And he is a competent quarterback. You can win games with him. But is he going to be the reason that you win those games most of the time? No, not most of the time. Sometimes when he elevates when he elevates his play, sometimes he'll be the reason that you won a game. But there's no doubt when Mahomes, Burrow, Allen, all these guys are on the field that they are going to elevate everyone else around them and that when you win games – I mean, it's always a team effort, but when you win games, a lot of it is going to be because of plays they made. That's not the case with that quarterback in Dallas. It's going to be was the running game good? Was the yards after catch good? Was the defense good? Was the special teams good? If all of those things are a check mark, you'll probably win the game, unless the guy throws three picks and really screws you. You'll win the game, but all of those things have to go right. If your defense is bad and the other the other things lined up, you got good running game, yards after catch, and all that stuff, it's still dicey, and that's not good. It's not good, and I'm not really speaking any specific examples there; just sort of speaking in general terms from all the games I've watched of theirs and his, in particular, over the last seven years. Pretty much everything has to line up and go right. And he can win you some games. But he's not really the reason that you win games. Which can be said for a lot of guys. Anyway, Tampa Bay could not generate pressure. So, I mean, immediately when Dak's got clean pockets, he's got three, four, five, six, ten 10 seconds to throw. However long he wants, really. You're you're not going to you're not going to beat anybody when they have that much time to throw the ball. It, Dak, it doesn't matter who it, who it is really. They have that much time. Somebody's going to break free. The Buccaneers on offense are terrible. Brady's washed. I mean, he's he's officially announced his retire but uh, retirement. But Brady's washed. He was not taking hits this year. He was not standing in the pocket to deliver balls when he needed to because he's 45 years old and he was you know, realized that he would not be playing very long if he started taking those hits. So this year, more than ever, he was not standing in the pocket to take hits. Their running game was non-existent. Tampa Bay, that was something that was a strength of theirs the last few years, that they were good. Their running game was strong. Passing game off of the running game, you know, was strong. I mean, in order to have a good passing game, most of the time, unless you've got one of those special guys, you're going to need a very strong, you're going to need a strong running game and they didn't, uh, they didn't have that this year at any point. Uh, they didn't have a good passing game at any point this year. Their offensive line was terrible, and Brady was a 45-year-old guy who has never been particularly athletic, who was not taking hits and standing in the pocket, so it lined up perfectly for Dallas. They knew that they could send four and that they would get home every time. They didn't ever have to blitz. They could just send four and somebody was going to get home and Brady wasn't going to move and he was either going to throw the ball into the turf throw it away, whatever, and you were not going to get plus yardage. They couldn't run defensively. They couldn't get to the quarterback, so nothing else was going to play well for them, period. It starts on defense. It starts with getting to the quarterback. A good defensive line that gets to the quarterback, puts pressure on the quarterback, sacks him, whatever, can hide a bad secondary, a la the Cowboys. First half of the season, Getting to the quarterback, lots of sacks. Second half of the season, not so much. Defense gave up tons more points, tons more yards than the first half of the season because magically when you don't get to the quarterback and they have time to throw, somebody's going to get open. They're going to take a check down. They're going to get yards there, whatever. So that was a perfect matchup for Dallas. I mean, it just couldn't have got any better than that to play them in the first round. Um Now, on top of that, they go to the second round, though, and they play their worst nightmare, the 49ers. And why is it their worst nightmare? Because the 49ers were the opposite of the Buccaneers. 49ers could run the ball. Uh, They didn't run it that great. Dallas' defense played very well, much better, much better than I expected them to, actually, uh, based off of the last half of the season. They were up for the challenge. I will give Dallas' defense credit against the 49ers in the in the divisional round. They played great. They did. Um, they didn't really give up a lot of big plays, but they just folded in the second half, which I called when I was watching the game with uh, with my family. I said that I uh, expect to see the 49ers start to run and start to get something going offensively sometime in the third quarter, and that's exactly what happened. They used up all the gas they had because their offense was not able to sustain any drives and keep them off the field, and that's just what happens to anybody. It's what happens to anybody when you're when you're on the field that much. You're just going to run out of gas. They're not robots. They're human, and they're going to run out of gas, and they played great for about two and a half quarters and then slipped, and that's all San Francisco needed was to wear them down. On the flip side of that, San Francisco's defense was off the field a lot. Uh, they got their team, they got their their defense, the defense got themselves off the field. A lot of three and outs for Dallas, a lot of you know drives that went nowhere, not a lot of points scored. Only gave up 12 points to Dallas. Prescott, uh, a couple of just horrendous interceptions. Inexcusable. Should have had actually two more interceptions. There was a tipped ball, in the red zone that they got three off of, I think, that was thrown a pass behind Elliott on uh, on third down, tipped into the air into the middle of the field. Very lucky that wasn't picked off. And then Dak again, back to Dak, the, and how he folds under pressure, and how good is this offense really? How good is he leading them and everything? Okay, Dak, here you go. 15-yard line, your own 15, but you got three minutes. You got all three timeouts. We need seven, buddy. Go get it. First pass, if I'm remembering correctly, the first pass was nearly pick-sixed by the linebacker. It might have been Warner. I think it might have been Fred Warner. Nearly pick-sixed. He was running, he was off to the races to the end zone, and he left the ball behind him. The guy did. He got his hands on it, bounced out of his hands. But that should have been a pick six and, and stuck the dagger in right there. And so that was horrible. Second pass is behind Michael Gallup. He actually had Gallup open where, if he was a better thrower of the football, which he is not a good thrower of the football, especially on deep balls. If he was a good thrower of the football, that's a pass that is completed, and Gallup might have ran for seven. But it's not. He throws it behind him and short. Really horrible pass. Incomplete. Could have also been picked. Uh, but not as realistically as the others. Just a really poorly thrown ball. Uh, third, They get to third down. And I want to say there was a throw short of the sticks that was incomplete. No, he took a sack, I think. Anyway, I mean, that's it right there, right? Guys being paid a ridiculous amount of money, getting paid with the big boys, goes out there and plays like Josh Johnson on that possession. That's not good. So... Uh, They had a last-ditch drive after that that, of course, didn't even with the embarrassing Elliott pancake play at the end that never even came close to materializing anything. That was the 49ers-Cowboys game. 49ers did everything well that the Buccaneers did poorly. They could rush. Um, Prescott was pressured a lot. I don't think he was actually sacked that much once or twice, but he was pressured a lot. And when he's pressured... He's notoriously bad at making throws. Uh, he was pressured a lot. They got to him. Their running game wore that defense down, um, and just overall, San Francisco played well at at on both ends on defense. You know, and at rushing the quarterback, getting pressure there, stopping the run, stopping the pass. There really wasn't a lot there all game, and they did everything that the Buccaneers could not which is why that was a worst-case scenario for them. So anyway, that's the the Cowboys roundup as I was getting to that. Other things of, of note before we move on from the NFL entirely here are just that um, the Bills ran out of gas. They just were not looking good. Uh, Cincinnati beat them very decisively at home. Josh Allen has got to stop making mistakes. In crucial spots. And that's not just for that game. That's just in general. That's his one flaw. He's He's got such a great arm. He's so talented. Can move so well. Big, athletic. But he just... He... Because of that... It's kind of the blessing of the curse with that rifle on his arm. Uh, since he Since he knows he's got a sniper there. He tries stuff that he shouldn't try. When he learns to take what the defense gives him, that'll be when they're really scary. When he learns to take what the defense gives and that'll be when they're really scary. Jaguars are up and coming. I don't have a ton to say there. They they got beat by the Chiefs. There really isn't much else to say there. They got beat. Lawrence played pretty good. Uh he looked like the first overall pick in the draft from uh the previous year. Uh for the first time really in the back end of the season there. He played really well. Uh I think the Jaguars have something cooking there we'll we'll keep our eye on them in the future uh Ravens are just Huntley is not Lamar pure and simple they still could have won that game against Cincinnati but if I think if Lamar is in that game in the in the first round they would have won dolphins a lot of question marks there just to kind of round things out here a lot of question marks there. I don't really know what they need I guess defense is is going to be a big thing there I think Tua and his health these concussions is very scary and I think that they need to be very careful with him moving forward and I have to see him do what he did in the first five six games of the year I need to see him do that again next year before I really believe in him because I'm not really sure I I believe in him still Seahawks Geno Smith 32 years old journeyman Played well this year for Seattle. You know, Seattle, I think if Seattle just keeps stacking weapons and uh figuring out, you know, long term where they're gonna go at quarterback is a is a huge thing for them, but keep stacking weapons and they can win some games, obviously. Chargers, I think that head coach is a travesty. They kept him. They fired the O coordinator. We'll see how that does. I think Herbert is ridiculously talented. Um, and I would love to see him get trusted to do things. This year, they used him like a check down merchant. Uh, They used him like somebody would use Brock Purdy. And that is not who Herbert is. Um, So I would like to see him get used properly this coming year. I think the offensive coordinator really let them down. Vikings were fraudulent all year, pure and simple. Vikings were fraudulent all year. Um, And Kirk Cousins is... Kind of like Dak. He's good enough to win you some games. But a lot of the time... Well, actually, interestingly enough, he's he's different than Dak in, in one way. In that there's some games where he's the reason that you win. It's like 50-50. There's games where he's the reason that you win. But there's a lot of games where he's the reason that you lose, too. He's just a roll of the dice. That's how Dak is. Roll of the dice, Dak. Roll, of the, roll of the dice, uh, Kirk Cousins. Which one you getting? You getting a competent one this week, or you getting the one that throws three picks and is terrible? Which one you get? So that's that's who Kirk Cousins is. Minnesota, a lot of question marks there. On I could easily see them not being so good next year. They might improve. We'll see. So there's kind of our our roundup on the playoffs. Um, and and the Super Bowl looking looking to that Chiefs Eagles Sunday February twelfth, five thirty pm uh central time i believe 6:30 eastern um so we'll uh, we'll see how that all plays out and i'll have my thoughts on on how that unfolded for you next week moving on still in the nfl briefly but moving on from the season itself pro bowl the pro bowl oh boy pro bowl i don't know what they need to do with that i mean the the pro bowl flag football this year because it had become such a joke those guys weren't trying they're basically playing two hand touch out there anyway in full pads before this basically had become a joke so i don't really know what you do moving forward because they want to make money for tv they want people to watch it on tv obviously now i just don't think that you are going to be able to do anything to make these guys risk with how dangerous of a sport football is, you are not going to get them to be able to risk their bodies for nothing. And you could say, well, give them a million bucks each. They're still not going to, they don't care. You know, they're, they're not going to risk their, their long-term future, breaking leg or concussions or ligament injuries or whatever, or, you know, potentially even more serious things than that. They're just not going to do it. They've they've made that very clear, the way that they played the last several years, and then them moving into a flag football game. They are not going to play seriously. So what do you do? I have an answer of what to do, but it is not the answer for television. The TV answer, I don't know that you're going to get. We'll have to see when the ratings drop for that, um, what that really ended up looking like from a TV perspective. I watched a little bit of it. It was a mess. That's the only way to describe it. I have the answer, though, for what you do for the Pro Bowl. Maybe to give players incentives and pride for being a, a, you know, a Pro Bowler. Maybe this will help. I don't know. But they've got to find a way to bring the pride of being a Pro Bowler back into it. And whether that's cash or trophies or whatever it is to to do that, you've got to go that step. I'm not going to get into specifics on, on that. What I am going to get into specifics on, though, is the NFL should really consider doing the Pro Bowl twice a year. Now, that might sound crazy. They go, what? Twice a year? They could still do it once a year, but listen, hear me out on the twice a year. The reason that I think they should do this twice a year they should do it at the end of the season and that's when your people are elected to the Pro Bowl. They are pro bowlers. And at the beginning of the season probably before training camp. Probably. I feel like it would probably be difficult to do during training camp and preseason. They're focused on that. So I'm going to say before. And maybe they don't even do it before at all. Maybe they just keep it to after the season. But the reason that I say twice is that they should turn the Pro Bowl into a fully fan-centric event. And that's the reason it should happen twice. You should be elected to the Pro Bowl for your accomplishments. So for this season, for your accomplishments in the 2022-2023 season, you are a Pro Bowler. Congratulations. You're going to play in forget-the-flag football game. Okay, just keep it to some skills events that take place, but have the Pro Bowl be a weekend, Pro Bowl weekend. I know they do that for other, they kind of do this now. And this is where the idea spawns. They kind of do this now where they have little things, you know, fans can come and try to kick little field goals or throw footballs here and there, but turn it into a fully fan-centric weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, either make the, attendance free. They're probably not going to do that. Let's be real. Either free or within the very reasonable realm, you know, literally $10 tickets, something very reasonable that just about anybody can afford to take the family to go do right. Turn it into a family friendly fan centric event, have autograph signing sessions for with players have, Things where you can go and play catch with a pro bowler. I don't know, Tyreek Hill or Justin Jefferson or whoever. And Kirk Cousins or whatever. You know, have uh, have events that go on where you can go play catch with these guys. You know, set it up, all that stuff. I, like I said, I know they kind of do some of this now. But I'm saying go fully into this. Lean fully into it. Make this contractually obligated. That if you make the Pro Bowl, it's in every contract. You make the Pro Bowl, you've got to go do the Pro Bowl weekend. You'll get paid. You'll get whatever the Pro Bowl bonus is and everything. You'll get paid. But you have to go do it unless you are in the Super Bowl. If you are in the Super Bowl, you're allowed to skip it. That's the one caveat as they've always just sort of been skipping it anyway voluntarily and all that stuff. The one caveat is if you're in the Super Bowl, you can skip it. But if you are not in the Super Bowl and you make the Pro Bowl instead of ending up with freaking Tyler Huntley in the Pro Bowl because so many people went nah 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 I'm not going I'm not going I'm not going right so you end up having like the sixth guy in line that want that that is the Pro Bowl representative or whatever so but make it contractually obligated that way you're gonna have the stars there at least the ones that aren't in the Super Bowl you're gonna have the stars there and make this a weekend make it a weekend. Cheap tickets and have a skills competition on the Sunday or whatever, but leading into that, all sorts of fan stuff, play catch with Justin Jefferson and play catch with Aaron Rodgers or whoever the, you know, whatever they got. Contractually obligated, no way to get out of it. They have to do it. This is for marketing purposes, right, for the sport. Now, the second part of this is you got, you got all this fan stuff going on. That'd be real cool, I think. You know, do have all kinds of giveaways and whatever, right? The NFL makes an absolutely ridiculous amount of money. They can afford to do this. They can afford to give back to the fans. This is what you do. Twice a year, and it rotates places. Okay? So maybe you visit the warmer climates in the winter. You go to the places that would be colder, your buffaloes, your green bays, uh, your Foxboroughs. right? You go to those places for the summer one maybe. You go to the uh, warmer places in the winter. You go to Dallas and um, the Florida, you know, locations, Florida stadiums, Arizona, whatever. You go to those places in the, in the winter and you go to, but you rotate it out. So, you know, maybe, for example, we would say uh, this year it was in Las Vegas here in the winter. So let's go to go to Buffalo, go show the fans in Buffalo, the people that love the NFL in upstate New York and Maine and Vermont and New Hampshire and all that area, go show them some love. They never get this. They never get to consider they would have to travel. They'd have to buy plane tickets and hotels and all that stuff if they wanted to go to the Pro Bowl, and nobody's going to do that. Give them a chance to, to make the drive You know, within the realm of a reasonable distance to go check out, get to meet some NFL players, and it's cheap. It's nice and affordable for everybody, right? That, I think that is an amazing idea and you keep it you just keep it real simple the, so the players don't really have to they they just they just have to show up at their designated times participate in the activities they're signed up for they're contractually obligated they're paid i i don't see any players being able to complain about that i mean come on right they'll get paid a ridiculous amount of money for um a few hours of their time one weekend before the season starts and after the season ends now so i think i think that should be the way that the Pro Bowl should be going forward. And they can televise the skills competition, for example. They can still do that. Maybe that's where you make your TV money, but you try to make up the money elsewhere that you lose. Now, again, I have no idea what the money is, so I'm totally talking out of my butt here. But try to make up the money at the event with the selling of the cheap tickets, like said, 10 bucks or whatever they are, and you could sell you know sell jerseys and you know hats and all that stuff like you normally would right and maybe you can make the money up the difference between having an actual pro bowl game and just televising the skills competitions maybe you can maybe you can't either way you can make some money and that's a better i think that is a fantastic fan outreach um to to do that over the course of of several days at the end of the season and before the new one starts, get people excited and travel around and give these fans an opportunity because you know, there's never going to be a Pro Bowl in Green Bay, Minnesota, whatever. They're never going to do that, right? So, give them uh give give these fans in these other areas a chance to to really, you know, meet their stars and get to play catch with whoever and have a good time. And that's the way the Pro Bowl to me should go, should be moving forward should be a fan-centric event that uh, that rotates from uh, from city to city stadium to stadium and that way uh, it will have visited every city NFL city and stadium over the course of a 16 year period you'll you'll it'll it'll have visited every place as long as you keep rotating it to different stadiums every time so that's what I think so that's our whole NFL segment Super Bowl playoffs pro Bowl all that stuff is taking up the entire first hour here. Now we're going to get into, briefly, a couple other things. The NBA trade deadline's coming up. Uh, The biggest move, of course, so far, Kyrie Irving requesting a trade out of Brooklyn, out of nowhere, after seemingly wanting to sign an extension there. Obviously, that didn't work out. He requested a trade out of the blue. A couple days later, he is dealt to Dallas. For Spencer Dinwiddie, uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, I believe the 2029 first-round pick from Dallas and the second-round pick in 2027 and 2029. I could be missing a couple of the picks in there, but I believe that's the basic package. Kyrie's not under contract for next year, so this is a big risk for Mark Cuban and the Mavericks with taking on Kyrie Irving, who is polarizing to say the least, controversial. All sorts of issues that he has been in the headlines for that have been not basketball-related for the last couple of years. From the vaccine controversy, if you will, to rumors, discussions of possible anti-Semitism. He has been a locker room poison to pretty much every locker room he's ever been in, he says that he wants to stay in Cleveland forever, and then he doesn't like playing second fiddle to LeBron, so he says, I want out of here, even though they're winning games and going to championships and winning a championship. He wants out of here. He ends up in Boston. He tells the Boston crowd, I would love to re-sign here. I love you guys. Later in the year, says, goodbye. I'm out of here. See ya. I'm going to Brooklyn tells the Brooklyn Brooklyn crowd multiple times, I want to be here, blah, 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 and he wants out. So big risk for Mark Cuban and the Mavericks to trade some assets, not only players that have played solid on the court, but future draft picks for a guy who is not under contract next year, who they will have to see will even work well with Luka Doncic, breakout star the last several years for the Mavericks, only 23 years old, I think, coming up on 24 maybe. Um, but they're going to have to see whether that even works, because we've seen we've seen pairings of of all star players before that just doesn't work out because of the the play styles too similar. We're gonna have to see how that works. We don't even know how that's gonna work. Cuban doesn't even know how that's gonna work. But then would be the task, that, you know, let's say it works, right? And then you've got to get Kyrie to sign an extension, but then you've got to keep Kyrie from just imploding as he seems to, you know, say you sign him to a four-year deal in the offseason. He plays a year and a half of the deal, and all of a sudden, I want out. Nope, I want out. Get me out of here. So, I mean, that's a, geez, right? You know, that's a, you have no idea what you're, this guy is just such a wild card. You don't know what you're going to get. So I, personally, I live in Dallas. I like the Mavericks, Mavericks fan. I I don't follow the NBA day to day and watch every single game the way that I used to. I just keep up with the headlines. I watch Mavs game, fairly regularly. You know, keep an eye on it. Watch second half, whatever. I, I used to follow the NBA. I'll, I'll say this, you know, pretty uh, to, you know, as a, as a preface here is that I knew every player. I probably knew pretty much what they averaged. I knew everything in and out of of the NBA at one time. I'll be honest, the super teaming stuff is what pretty much got me out of it. The Golden State dominance, the KD going over there. That that's what kind of got me out of it. Also, it's 50 50 between the super team stuff and just how soft the defense is. I know people will say, ah, oh, you're just a boomer. You're you're acting like a boomer right now. It's great when the final score is 147 to 138. Not really. You know, I liked it when it was when you were on the edge of your seat for every time that you could score and trying to extend that lead and hold a team. And you see some great basketball played in the playoffs because you know what? They actually try in the playoffs. They try. Shocking, I know, but they finally try. So the playoffs are usually pretty good. But it's just so disheartening to watch that the regular season essentially matters less in National Basketball Association than any other league. They don't care. Load management, you know, we'll coast into the playoffs at this spot, and then we'll try. They don't care. They just go out there, chuck shots. They don't care. So that that's what really turned me off probably more so than the super team stuff, but it's pretty close to 50-50. Uh, super team stuff, the players, no loyalty, all that stuff. I know super boomer takes here, but it's it really is frustrating from a fan perspective. Um... So yeah, I mean I so I don't, you know, I'm not totally in on what every single player is doing at all times, but I do know that Kyrie Irving has been very poisonous to every organization he has ever been a part of and this is a big risk for the Mavericks, a big risk for Cuban. We'll see if it works out. He had to kind of swing for the fences because it is just painful to watch Doncic go out and play efficient games. I mean, you know, he's not always efficient. Nobody is, but to, to watch him go out there and put up a great game and trying his butt off and for that to mean nothing um, because the team will end up losing because he just does not have the talent around him to do much else. The depth on the team is still terrible with the acquisition of Kyrie uh, and arguably gets worse because of them losing Dinwiddie and um, Dorian Finney-Smith, but team is in rough shape as far as the the depth goes. And Kyrie Irving didn't. He supposedly wanted to be with the Lakers. That was his top destination. And the GM in Brooklyn made sure to not send him to the Lakers. So no idea how this is going to work. And we're just going to have to wait and see. Uh, as far as anything else at the trade deadline... It's possible Durant might get moved. Um, We we don't know how that's going to play out. I don't think that we're going to see much more. I believe the trade deadline is Thursday. So I'm recording this on Tuesday, February 7th. I believe the trade deadline is Thursday, February 9th. So I don't think we're going to see any transactions today. I think there'll be some transactions tomorrow and up to the deadline time on Thursday. So we'll see who else gets moved. We'll see if there's any other bigger moves than this, but this seems to be the front runner for sure. LeBron James has been complaining very publicly about ownership and them not making moves and not bringing in the right guys, but at the end of the day, you ask me, I think it's probably a discussion for, or a longer discussion for another time, but... Maybe after the trade deadline, next week's episode, we'll talk about this more in depth, but uh, LeBron has crafted these teams pretty much handpicked. For the last several years, it has not worked out. And then he kind of has the gall to complain. And he he's really kind of been the architect of his own demise here. So we'll talk about that more next week after the trade deadline is actually over NBA discussion here today is just more of a shorter one kind of focusing on the Kyrie situation there. We'll also next week uh, with the NBA we'll talk about the All-Star game and I believe we'll we should know who's going to be in the three-point and dunk contest and all that stuff like officially officially the final rosters for all that stuff then too. We'll talk about that and the All-Star game uh, for the NBA coming up. So, yeah, that kind of wraps up our our NBA portion here. On to the NHL, though, just kind of without skipping a beat. I don't really uh, have a lot to say about the NHL, at least as in-depth as I did anything else, as we talked about the NFL for so long, and then about 10 minutes there on the NBA. But... I just thought it would be good to cover because I, I do like the NHL. I don't watch it again, kind of like the NBA. I used to watch the NHL a lot and I've been trying to make sure that I watch more games of the NHL uh, in the last couple of years. And I have, but I still am not entirely, you know, every single player and all their stats sort of thing, the way that I used to be. Uh, but I do pay attention to it. I do, Uh, I do pay attention to the headlines the same way that I do the NBA. So I'm fairly aware of what's going on in the NHL uh, throughout the season. And so I just thought at the moment, since there didn't seem to be anything of uh, extraordinary note, we'd just kind of go over the standings um, as I believe the NHL just wrapped up their all-star game and their all-star break here um, this past weekend. So, we're we're coming into I believe the first games uh post All Star break happened just yesterday, and they're kind of getting back into the swing of things for the back end of the season here and the way the playoffs are shaping up and everything. So the over in the Atlantic Division the Bruins are leading the Maple Leafs and Lightning that's one two three over there with the Sabers Panthers Senators Red Wings and Canadians following. The Metropolitan Division has got the Hurricanes leading that division over there. Well, okay, so the Bruins are leading. Um, I believe the Bruins are the best team in the league at the moment. They are 39-7, which is a pretty torrid pace, pretty ridiculous. They are 7-2 and as far as win-losses go over their last nine games. And the Bruins... Are just kind of torching everybody there, 39 and 7. But the Hurricanes in the Metropolitan Division are also 34 and 9. They're torching uh, everybody over there pretty good. They're 9 and 0 over their last nine games. And the Devils are trailing them by four games, it looks like, um, as they are 33 and 13. And the Rangers are 28 and 14 in the Metropolitan Division. And then when we, that's over in the Eastern conference. Then when we head over to the Western conference in the central division, the stars lead the way. My Dallas stars go stars, Dallas stars. They are uh, 29 and 13. I do. I do. I love going to hockey games in person. I haven't been to one this year yet. I'm going to try to squeeze in a game or two. I try to always go to like three or four hockey games a year if I can, uh, at the current current moment in time but I've I have not been able to go yet and um I would like to go like to squeeze in a game or two this year down the stretch here if I can I've been keeping my eye the last month or so I've been keeping my eye on some tickets and seeing where I might might be able to go but they're 29 and 13 leading the jets um who are 32 and 19 And the Wild, who are 27 and 18. That's your top three there, followed by the Avalanche Predators, Blues, Coyotes, and Blackhawks. Blackhawks really awful this year, 15 and 29. The Kraken lead the Pacific division, though, 29 and 15. Just a couple losses worse than Dallas. The Kings, 28 and 18, second over there. The Golden Knights, 29 and 18. The Oilers, right there, hanging right there. I'm going to mention them too, 28 and 18. They are very close to Vegas and L.A. That's a close division right there for those top. Uh, really all the top spots. I mean, the Krakens have three less in the loss column and one more in the win column than those other teams, but it's close. You know, that can obviously swing very easily. Flames, Canucks, Sharks, and Ducks rounding out the Pacific Division. And uh, so there you have it going on in the uh, in the NHL. Uh, in the NHL there, the... Lots of things to keep an eye on as they get uh, post-All-Star break here and how the playoffs are going to shake out for them. I also I highly recommend, man, even if you are not a big hockey fan, I promise that the NHL playoffs are worth watching. I always watch the playoffs, even if I haven't been the best fan throughout the year. I always watch the playoffs when hockey playoffs come around because there is nothing like it. It's so intense. It, it's so edge of your seat action. Um, teams coming back. You know, you go to other sports and it's like, ah, coming back from 3-0 is damn near impossible. You know, it's happened like once in baseball. And I don't think it's ever happened at any level of uh, the playoffs in basketball. Um, you, you, you look at it and, oh, man, that's just ridiculous. There are 3-0 comebacks in the NHL. It happens. It is crazy. It is never over until it is over. Game sevens, left and right, throughout the entire playoffs. Intense series is back and forth. The NHL playoffs is worth every minute that you give it. I I just about guarantee that. So, you know, if you want to pick one team to watch or if you want to watch it all, just check it out. Get into the NHL playoffs when they come around. It is worth your time. It's a it's a lot of fun. The crowds are intense. There is nothing like it. It is the best. If you ask me, I think it's the best playoffs out of the four major sports in the United States. I think it's the best playoffs. I think it's the most um, most intense and enjoyable to watch, and I think it has the best atmosphere. Truly. Um. So yeah, that's our that's gonna conclude our NHL segment at the moment. With not much else that I had earmarked to discuss. And um, yeah, so keep an eye on the the NHL, the back half of the season. Check out the playoffs when they come around; you won't be disappointed, uh, even if you aren't the biggest uh, biggest hockey follower, NHL follower. Uh, I guarantee that there are going to be some some fantastic games, and you don't want to miss them. So, moving into our final segment here, we're going to talk about NASCAR. This is—I know this is not everybody's cup of tea. I know it's not you know, 1997 anymore. It's NASCAR is not quite <laughs> anywhere really near the popularity that it was at that time. But of course is still is still popular in this, in this country. And, uh, they just had their first race of the season. It is not a points race. It was an exhibition race called the clash. Bush clash has been going on for a long time. And, um, Gosh, it has to go back to at least the early 80s at a minimum. It might even be longer than that. It used to be at Daytona. For all these years, uh, it was at Daytona. And it was the precursor, one of the precursor races to the Daytona 500. A few years ago, they moved it out of there. They decided they wanted to switch it up. They wanted to change things. NASCAR has been, there There will be plenty to talk about in the realm of NASCAR and as a governing body, um, and we, I'll talk. I guess I'll talk a little bit about that here. So NASCAR. If you're new to NASCAR, if you don't know anything about NASCAR, here's the basic synopsis. NASCAR has been around. This is a 75th season, actually, as a as a governing as a as a sport, a registered sport, governing body of NASCAR. 75th year. It's boom. It's biggest peak was absolutely the 1990s. Uh, that is unquestioned. But its rise to mainstream popularity starts at the 1979 Daytona 500. It was very popular throughout the South, as all as a, there's lots of auto racing throughout the South. I mean, there's lots of auto racing around the country that's very popular, um, local, grassroots-type stuff. But NASCAR itself, uh, being the biggest auto racing series in the United States, it's... Its popularity, its mainstream popularity began in the 1979 Daytona 500. And I I guarantee, I promise that before the Daytona 500, I'm going to have a large discussion about NASCAR. That's going to be a big part of that episode. But to kind of keep it simple for new to our listeners who might be new to the sport, I recommend that you check it out, first of all, and formulate your own opinions. That's the biggest thing, formulate your own opinions not every race is going to be exciting. Not every race is going to have side-by-side action. Um, but I, I want, you know, all I ask for people that are new to it, that are not completely averse to it, is to just check it out. Just give it a try. Watch some of the marquee races, even if you don't want to watch some of the, the, other, the other stuff, to watch the marquee races, and give it a shot. Give it its fair shot. But anyway, back to the history of it for for those that are unfamiliar 1979 Daytona 500 featured a heck of an exciting ending with Yarborough and Allison Kyle Yarborough and uh oh gosh I'm a bad uh, bad NASCAR fan was that Bobby or Donnie because the reason I'm confused or or for my confusion there is that Bobby and Donnie were brothers Okay, so it was it was Bobby. Okay, I'm sorry. I had to do a little bit of in-live in research here. So, Cale Yarborough and Bobby Allison were coming. Last lap, the white flag, Daytona 500. They're coming down the back stretch. Yarborough moves to try to pass him, and they beat and bang the doors and sliding down into turn three and into the wall and down into the infield grass. And... The reason I got confused about all that is because Kale and Bobby get out of the car and they're angry. This was the first, I believe, nationally televised around the country. Daytona 500, first one, 1979. And Bobby and Kale are out of the car. Richard Petty ends up winning the race. Daryl Waltrip finished second They because they were way behind and then they end up coming up and fighting for the win because these two crashed at the front. And, uh, Kale and Bobby get out of the car and start fighting. A fist fight down on the, uh, infield grass. And Donnie Allison, Bobby's brother, comes down there, uh, and parks his car after the race. And he gets down there and he's hitting Kale and Kale's swinging and they're all the officials, everybody. It's a huge fight. The famous, um, the famous, and there is a fight by, um, um, oh goodness, I'm not, uh, not giving him justice by remembering his name off the top of my head, which his name is always in my head. Um, the famous announcer. Oh gosh, that's, uh, it's gonna beat me up, so I have to... Ken Squire! Sorry, I believe it was Ken Squire. My, my apologies. Ken Squire, but, and there is a fight! You know... These two men, they know, I'm paraphrasing, they they are bitter, they are angry, they know they have lost. It was very famous. So that little history there, 1979, Daytona 500, very famous. They started a fist fight down there. It was nationally televised. And people, as the first time, the people, uh, people, you know, they gathered around at work on Monday and they went, man, did you see that race? That NASCAR, I think they call it, Daytona 500? Those two guys getting into the fight? That was great. So... That's where the rise began, and the '80s it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And NASCAR is, uh, you know, predominantly was a southern sport. Uh, tracks all over the South, a lot of short track racing, some big speedways in there: Talladega, Daytona, Darlington, and uh, but a lot of short tracks: Bristol, Martinsville, North Wilkesboro, uh, Nashville Fairgrounds. A lot of a uh, lot of very, um, you know, southern routes in the sport of course, and so the, the 80s saw, uh, you know, a lot of, a huge rise to that, and a lot of the stars, uh, you know, center stage through there, um, Yarborough, and the Allisons, and Richard Petty, and the rise of Dale Earnhardt, and Daryl Waltrip, and, you know, a lot of guys uh, throughout the 80s, Tim Richmond, RIP, Tim Richmond, uh, all, all those guys that saw you know saw to the to raising the popularity of the sport 90s was the peak though 90s was the absolute peak dale earnhardt is dominating um the you asked me the best driver to ever drive a nascar was dale earnhardt um uh, but of course jeff gordon and oh man all i could name off all kinds of people from the from the 90s i could keep you here forever on that but earnhardt and gordon and rusty wallace and Lots of great guys, Terry Labonte, a lot of lot of popularity throughout the throughout the '90s. That that uh, really that the sport really blew up. And then you ask me, they overexpanded. So this is this is the history of that. They overexpanded. They they created a lot of cookie cutter tracks that were very similar to one another. Places like uh, Chicago Land and Kansas and Texas and um they they built a lot of these tracks to try to draw in fans in those markets right um that mile and a half tracks that are that just aren't good tracks they're just mostly bad nothing good about them and they expanded the schedule they overexpanded the tracks Dale Earnhardt dies in the 2001 Daytona 500 pivotal moment in the history of that sport um and very tragic very sad and they maintained good popularity even after his death. Everything was still on track, pretty good, throughout the 2000s. Then they started tooling with the rules. You get the they go from the traditional point system for the champion to change into the chase for the cup, and we go to the car of tomorrow, uh, which was basically they changed the body style. There's been various generations of that, but they changed the body style to this absolutely awful car that didn't drive well big ugly wing on the back of it. They changed the point standings rules again. You, they'd finally get out of the car tomorrow uh, circa, like what was that, 2012. and But it was in that period of time, car tomorrow era and into the, the 2010s, that NASCAR really slipped hard and just lost a lot of fans. And I think the main reasoning was that they, they tooled with the rules And the the points, standings, and the way the champions were determined way too much. It got too complicated. They went to these bad tracks. They'd gotten away from their roots. They tried to chase fans that, in my opinion, weren't out there. They tried to chase fans that didn't exist. With all these rule changes and tracks and all this different stuff that they did. They tried to chase fans that did not exist. And... The 2010s saw a, a, a very bad decline in the popularity on television, at the attendance at the tracks, et cetera. Now, they've moved to last year a new car, the next gen car. This car generally seems to be better, not for safety. We'll talk about that um, another time, but it seems to be better, and the racing's better. And another another problem that's the is another issue entirely. I'm trying to keep it as simple as I can for the listeners that are not NASCAR people is the personalities of the drivers took a nosedive. There was a lot. That's what got the, what was so popular. You had these kind of these good old boys and a lot of these guys with some great personalities in the eighties and nineties and two thousands. And those guys have retired. Jeff Gordon, Tony Stewart, Dale Earnhardt passed away. Dale Earnhardt Jr. Retired. Um, you had a lot of the Mark Martin. You had a lot of these get retired. Um, a lot of these guys they they retired they're they're retired they're you know they're old older and they were replaced by kind of like generic hi my name is you know john smith kind of guys that are just don't have any flair don't have any personality they're not interesting they're not funny um that's not all of them there are some guys out there there's some there's some fun guys out there but it's just not like it used to be and that's another issue entirely anyway um They, the last decade has been rough, but the past year showed some signs of them, uh, of them really realizing it. And the reason that I brought this whole history up in the clash and everything is because as a governing body, NASCAR, I believe it took them a decade and declining viewership over all that time, more than a decade to realize their mistakes which was of chasing the fans that aren't there. And their focus now seems to be to try, first of all, to try new things, to not just keep beating their head against the wall. We're getting a street race in Chicago this year. The Clash is a new thing from uh, the in, in the L.A. Coliseum here from last year was the first year they did it. And they're, they're trying new things. And they're willing to try new. They put more road courses on the schedule. They're willing to try new things, which is a good thing. They're taking races away from boring tracks, like Texas and and Kansas, the Chicagoland lost its races, all this stuff, and trying them out, these points races, on new tracks or, or or putting them back at old tracks or whatever it is. So they're trying to kind of get back to the roots and try to recapture the fans that once supported them, which is smart and a good idea because that's when it was at its best. When it was at its best, it's a lot of short track racing and trying to, to stick to your roots Kind of thing, uh, and they got too far away from that, and so we'll see how that plays out in the coming years. But I think that they have sort of realized, you know, recognized that that problem in themselves. So that's a little brief history lesson for those that might be new to NASCAR. They they made mistakes, and they kind of seem to be trying to get back to the roots and do some good things to to get get fans back that were that used to support NASCAR um, by returning to your roots. You know, go back to doing the things that made your sport so great. You know, there was a time where they were, arguably they were second only to the NFL. You know, and now they are most certainly down there in NHL territory. Now, that's not a shot at the NHL. It's just that the NHL hasn't caught on here the way that it is in Canada or or um, in Europe. And NHL's great. I love hockey. Don't, don't get me mistaken on that. I'm just saying from a viewership, spectator sort of standpoint. And so here we are, the NASCAR, the Bush class at the Coliseum, a 0.25 mile track. Now, typically speaking, most of the short tracks that we visit on the NASCAR schedule are half mile. I think Bristol is around a half a mile. Martinsville is about the same. Those are kind of the, those are the shorter tracks on the schedule. So that's usually about a half a mile is what you can do for, you know, 40 cars in the field. And all that sort of stuff, but the Bush class at the Coliseum was, I believe, 27 cars who qualified via heat races and last chance qualifier races where they had less cars on the track and things to give guys an opportunity to race their way into the main event. That's how it works in grassroots racing. You go see late models and things like that at uh, small local tracks all around. That's how they... That's how they do that. They do heat races for qualifying. They don't do, like, timed qualifying laps. Um, You have to race your way in. And that's how they did it for this, which is great. I got no problem with that at all. Um, I think that's great. I think that's a good way to go about that. Now, as far as the track itself, I think it's cool that it's even, from an engineering standpoint, that it's even possible to put this .25-mile oval inside of a football stadium, the historic L.A. Coliseum. From a viewer perspective in the second year, it's it's not it. It, it the track is too short it it's too short it's flat you can only run the inside groove to pass um with the exception of maybe the first few laps after a restart when everybody is bunching themselves up on the inside line you can try to get to the outside pick up a couple spots and then dive back in but it's it's bad racing when you it's it's bad when you have one groove That goes for any track. It does not matter what the size is. When you have one groove that you can run for speed or for the best laps, that's a very bad situation. RE Texas all-star race last year. Texas race last year in general. Texas the last freaking decade in general. When you can only run one line for speed and you can't pass any other way, it's a recipe for disaster. And that race had like 16 cautions, I think um and they they were all for just these little spins, little dust ups. So then you're bunching everybody back up and then you're doing it it wasn't good. It just it just wasn't good. It's it's a it, they're all just beating on each other in this event, this short event. I don't like the concert in the middle of the event. I think running 75 laps holding a concert and then running another 75 laps is silly. I'm not a fan of that. And I think it's a neat idea. It's for outreach of the sport. That's why it's over in Los Angeles. Cause we don't really run that many races in California. What do we have like auto club and Sonoma? So you got Sonoma in Northern California. And I'm actually unaware of exactly where auto club is. Um, it's further South than Sonoma, but Point being, you know, it's not really. We don't really go out to California. NASCAR does, so it's an outreach thing. And you know, I said the same thing about the Pro Bowl, right? For outreach, and I get it, but man, it just doesn't work at with this little stadium. It's it's in. Or it's a cool feat from an engineering standpoint. It's not really practical. It doesn't really produce a great race with that many cars on the track. The heat races were better races. And the last chance qualifier races were better races than the the main event because the main event had twenty seven on the track, and they're all bunched up and there's and there's just too much there's too many people spinning and it's just not good, it's just not good. So my review of the actual race, the and the Coliseum thing, I don't think they should do it again. If they wanna if they don't want to go back to Daytona, rotate it, go around, do it at some different places. Maybe places that you don't currently visit on the schedule. Maybe take it to North Wilkesboro or something. But short, I think it should be at Short Tracks. I think that's the best exhibition of the sport. I think it should be at Short Tracks if you're not going to take it. But, you know, go around do it at some other places. Take it to Bristol. I think they did that a few years ago. But take it back to Bristol. Take it to North Wilkesboro. If we're going to end up at the Nashville Fairgrounds again, which it kind of seems like they are uh, going to go back there or to... Uh, um, Rockingham maybe in, in five, six, seven years or whatever. But take it around to some of these other places or even if it's not places we currently visit, take it to somewhere else that is at least close enough to cup ready to, to do that. But the Clash at the Coliseum is just not it. It was a better race last year, but now that everybody kind of figured the track out and has had all that experience, all the racing simulation ability and all that sort of stuff, it, it's it's not a good race. That's that's sort of my unbiased review of that. Um, I watched every lap, and I it, that many cars on the track that small of a track. It's too small. It's too small. Um, my thoughts on uh, on the race itself, though, or, or continuing on my thoughts on the race itself. It, yeah, I the one groove being able to run basically everybody run the bottom can't pass on the outside. Um, no banking. So you can't get speed anywhere else or anything like that. It's too small. They're running an average lap speed of like 64 miles an hour or something like that. It's, it's just too slow and too small. It's just, it's just not it. That's, that was my thoughts on the race itself. I don't like the, the, the break in the middle. Like I mentioned before, I think that pretty much covers it, um, about all that. So I, I just, you know, I'm looking forward to the season. I will discuss each race every week when we do this show. But the 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 clash um the crash, clash I don't really know what to give it on in like a out of 10 sort of rating. Um maybe a 4. I I don't really know what to give it. It's just the racing wasn't very good and uh the the way it's set up is, is kind of foolish as well. And uh don't love the track. Don't love the little little track at the Coliseum. Um only one other really thing of note from the race that happened to talk about here briefly was Bubba Wallace. Daryl Wallace, Bubba. Um this guy, Bubba Wallace. I, and the reason I'm bringing him up specifically out of any of the other... It was lots of incidents of people being angry at each other and spinning each other out, I but the list would be so long. So believe me, I'm not saying this was isolated to him or anything like that at all. But the reason I want to talk about him is because he has an image problem. And Bubba is the only full-time African-American driver in NASCAR. And with that, there's there's been some things... some you know, the whole garage pole story and everything. And there is absolutely it being a a more Southern oriented sport and all that sort of stuff. There's absolutely certain fans, segments of fans that are not going to like him no matter what. And we know why. So let me get that out of the way first that that's absolutely real. I don't doubt it. That's absolutely real. That being said, That seems to be a fallback position for a lot of criticism of him when he does something that should be legitimately criticized. I don't mean from him, per se, um, saying this, but I mean from the other fans of NASCAR that will just go, that will sort of brush things off and go, well, we know why they're saying that about him. No, 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 no. There's plenty to legitimately criticize with him. And he has an image problem. And this race, once again, showed his image problem. There was, of course, the controversy last year with him where he intentionally wrecked Kyle Larson at very dangerous speeds and then attacked him out of the car, which was very awful for his image. I mean, he lost fans that day that he will never get back. I promise you from that. That was very, very, very bad. Um, so to a quick recap on that. I, what was that... Um, Oh shoot, what track was that? Oh, I I am having trouble remembering um Hold on. Uh I am going to I'm going to um take a look at this. So this was uh so Bubble Wallace South Point 400. Las Vegas. Okay, I knew it was one of the mile and a half, so I just couldn't remember. I knew it wasn't Atlanta cuz the way they reconfigured it. So at uh, at Las Vegas last fall uh Bubba Wallace, Kyle Larson, Kyle they were they were racing each other. They kind of came out of the corner. Kyle ran him up the track a little bit. Bubba didn't Bubba and Kyle didn't hit each other. If I, if I remember correctly, they actually did not make contact, but Bubba kind of scraped the wall cuz he was forced up there. Bubba got angry. He full throttle accelerated right down into Larson on the straightaway and spun him out at 100 you know, 30, 140 miles an hour, whatever it was coming up to speed. They, you know, they get up to 180 at that track, 170, 180. And uh, that was very dangerous. And that's a big no-no. And, and that's not acceptable. When people typically speak in all the way back, 70s, 80s, you bump somebody out of the way or wreck somebody, you do it at a short track, that's short track racing. That's the way that it's viewed. You don't do that at speedways. That's dangerous. Even though the cars are much safer than they used to be, um that's very dangerous. And he did a big no no. I think the people in the booth broadcast, broadcasting the race were shocked. I think everybody that was that reacted on social media, every fan that was watching was shocked to see something like that happen. And he spun him out at high speed, 130, 140, 150 miles an hour. And Larson hit the wall pretty hard and that the car has had issues this new car has had some issues with with guys getting hurt. The car it's stinging a little bit. Um, and some concussions and then they're getting out of the cars and Bubba gets away from the safety guys and goes over there and shoves Larson very hard multiple times and is going after him when the guy could be hurt. It was very dangerous. Everything about that was very dangerous. Bubba was suspended for a race. He was parked. That's rare. I'd like to throw out there. That's rare that they actually park a guy usually get fines and you lose points, but he got parked. That was a big deal. And so He's had this problem of being a whiner and a complainer and being angry ever since he's gotten to the Cup Series. It didn't really seem to happen when he was in the Xfinity Series and the Truck Series, but it's happened since being in the Cup Series. He's been a major complainer. That's my unbiased, like, I, it, this, you know, uh, this this has nothing to do with with... But what I was trying to preface all that with is nothing to do with the color of his skin. Okay, Unbiased perspective is that he has been a whiner and a complainer and is a known track record. There's lots of guys that are whiners, complainers. Uh, And he has a known track record of it. And he did it again after the clash. Ten laps to go, restart. Him and Austin Dillon, I want to say this too. I do not like Austin Dillon. I think Austin Dillon is a... I don't like him. I have a lot of adjectives to describe him. I do not like Austin Dillon. But Austin Dillon is lined up next to Bubba. um, And, or sorry, I think Bubba's lined up next to Truex. Truex is on the inside, Austin's on the inside, and then it's Bubba on the outside and Bowman behind him on the outside, I think. So, 10 laps to go, restart. Uh, Truex gets the inside track, kind of pulls out ahead, and Austin Dillon and Bubba start going at it side by side um, as Truex has a pretty clear lead. And Austin gets to the door of Bubba Wallace going into a corner and bumps him a little bit, you know, get him out of his groove a little bit, see if he can zip by him on the inside, and he does, passes him. And But that's short track racing, just gives him a bump to the door. I don't see anything wrong with that. And, you know, and he did that, and he knows he's probably going to get bumped back. Bubba bumps his right rear quarter panel, if I remember right, going to the next corner. Then gets to the bumper and bumps him in the bumper pretty hard. Then bumps him in the left rear quarter panel pretty hard. Then they go down the track, down the straightaway, on the next straightaway, and Bubba slams his door a lot harder than Dylan did. And at that point, Dylan fought back and hit him back on the door as they went into the corner. And Bubba, I think I think Bubba gets by him after that. Passes him. After hitting him some more. So basically, they're, they're coming off the next corner after the bumps. And Bubba's ahead in second. And Dylan's in third. Dylan revs her up. Rams into his bumper going to the next corner pretty hard. You know, not... Not unreasonably, like it, it's a hard shot, but it's it you know it's not like he threw it into fifth gear and really went crazy or anything. He uh, he slammed into his his rear bumper, but didn't act didn't turn the wheel or anything, didn't quarter panel him, just rear bumper slammed him pretty hard. Bubba lost control, spun out, and ends up finishing the race. Um, I had the have the standings right here. He finished the race twenty second. Uh, the other guys, he finished last in the field of the cars that were still on the track as a result. Uh, Austin Dillon finished second. Martin Truex Jr. ended up winning the race. But um, everybody's out of their cars. Everybody's out of their cars after the race and everything. And the camera pans over to Bubba Wallace while they're interviewing Austin Dillon, and he's sitting in his car, and he's looking like he's pouting, sitting in his car, he's sipping on his his water. And he's not out of the car. he's just sitting over there looking angry, like I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm angry and he eventually gets out of the car and gets interviewed, and he's basically complaining about what what Dylan did he's he's long story short i I don't have the quotes all exactly up here and all that stuff, but long story short he he's complaining about the way he was raced. he's not happy that Austin Dylan did that to him, et cetera et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, he did that all race. To other people, raced him hard, bumped him, all that kind of stuff, all race. But he's not happy that Austin Dillon raced him that way. Austin technically started it with the bump to the door uh, after the restart. But again, wasn't that hard of a bump. Just a regular short track bumped him. I didn't see a problem with it, personally. And then Bubba goes and hits him about five times, if I remember right, before Austin finally goes, All right, fine. Because the way that I saw it was that Austin bumped him and passed him in the door. Um, and the way I saw it, Austin figures, I'm going to get bumped back. You know, I can't get mad about it. And again, I don't like Austin Dillon either. And Bubba got to him, like I said, four or five times of some pretty hard shots. And Austin figured, okay, that's I gave you the first two or three because of what I did to you, but now you've crossed the line back, and I'm going to hit you again. So he did. That that short track racing. I don't care who's involved. I don't know. I don't care who. I don't care if it's you know Kyle Larson and Ryan Priest or Denny Hamlin and Justin Haley. I I don't care who's involved. Now Austin Dillon is not a super popular driver, and neither is Bubba. Uh, but. You know, my point, my point sort of being is I don't, I don't care who's involved. I don't see anything wrong with what Austin Dillon did. I, I just don't. Um, he, he hit him hard and, and Bubba spun out, but he didn't, uh, he didn't Matt Kenseth Joey Logano him, um, if you will, for my NASCAR fans out there that remember that or, um, you know, he, he didn't, uh, he didn't do that to him. He gave him a hard shot in the bumper. Bubba lost control, spun out. That's the way she goes. And I just don't see a problem with it. I just don't see a problem with it. And and I thought that was a notable situation to discuss because it happened at the end of the race. There was plenty of other guys. Bubba knocked his car owner out of the way earlier in the race, Denny Hamlin, to take a spot. There was plenty of that. That happened amongst, uh, you know, just about everybody in the field was bumping on each other and getting into each other all over the place. But... This happened at the end of the race and there was some controversy about it. My personal opinion is that Austin Dillon didn't do anything wrong there. I'll be the first to call out Austin Dillon for he's Austin Dillon has spun people out hard on purpose before this. He definitely did this on purpose. Like he hit him on purpose, but I don't see anything wrong with it. The circumstances, I don't see anything wrong with it. Um, he, he gave him a little shot to the bumper, and uh, Bubba couldn't hang on. And, you know, basically there's a point I think every driver would probably agree that, you know, if you tap somebody to get by him or bump somebody, you can expect to get bumped back. That's the way it goes. And if you race a guy clean, then you would hope that they'll race you clean too. It, you know, it goes both ways, two-way street. If you race somebody clean. And if you're a guy who has a reputation for racing people clean, that will help you. In that regard, people will also they'll respect that they'll go yeah he's a clean racer and they'll race clean back most of the time not all of them most of the time and uh, so you know when you have a reputation you know Ross Chastain's an example he's got a reputation for racing people hard racing aggressive bumping people he's gonna have that happen back to him and from anybody and uh, you know so that's just kind of the way it goes and and Dylan bumped him. And Bubba bumped him and hit and bumped him and bumped him and bumped him. And Dylan said, okay, that's, that's one too many. You know, I deserve the other ones for bumping you in the first place, but you, that's one too many. I'm bumping you back. So, uh, I just don't see anything wrong with what he did. I just don't see anything wrong with uh, what he did. So we'll be looking forward to the Daytona 500 in two weeks. The, Yeah, we're just going to pull up the schedule here real quick. The Daytona 500, of course, they're not going to go head-to-head with uh, the Super Bowl this coming week. But they are going to be racing the Daytona 500 on Sunday, February 19th. We will talk more about that leading into that race next week. The dual races, they still do the duels at Daytona, and that will be happening uh, next Thursday, February 16th. Uh, that's uh, the first duel, and the second one is after that on the same day, and then the 500 is one thirty p.m. Central, 2.30 Eastern, 11.30 um, a.m. Pacific Time. At uh, at Daytona Sunday, February nineteenth. So we will uh, we will be seeing seeing how uh, some of these relationships with one another as drivers will play out uh, in at the at, in the duels and at the Daytona five hundred on the nineteenth. We'll talk more about that next week when uh, when it's relevant. That's uh, that's gonna do it for the show though. We're gonna we're gonna sign off with that one. Uh did just under two hours here in the first episode. I don't know. Can't really tell you going forward for this being the first episode. I don't know how long that they will be in the future. Some episodes may be short, might be an hour, and some might be more like this. But it's just sort of whatever I have to talk about and however long that goes on. So we did, um, we did about an hour on the NFL and then an hour kind of covering the NBA trade deadline and the NHL standings and NASCAR. So you can kind of expect just based off of what is going on in those different sports at that time. Um, If there's a bigger event going on in baseball, we'll probably talk more about baseball. If there's a bigger event going on in the NHL or the NBA, we'll talk about that longer probably. But going forward, um, we will be doing this uh, on a weekly basis. So... I do appreciate all of the listeners that tuned in today for this. And you have just listened to the very first episode of the Victory Cigar Podcast. Be sure to follow the Victory Cigar Podcast on Twitter. Yes, that's right. There is a Twitter account for this. It is at Victory Cigar Pod. Be sure to follow that. I will see about other platforms. We're just going to start with Twitter, but for now, listening to this first episode, you've reached this point, go follow the Victory Cigar Pod on Twitter. Uh, As far as where the podcast will also be uploaded as well, as I'm sure you're listening to it on one of these platforms. But I am going to try to get it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts at the very least, and then we'll explore the other avenues, other listening services for this podcast Maybe even some sort of audio upload to YouTube. We'll see, but we're going to start there, and uh, we'll backlog anything you know when we move it to new platforms. They'll all the episodes will be uploaded to a new platform that we go to. Um, so yeah, at Victory Cigar Pod on Twitter. Thank you all very much for listening. This has been the Victory Cigar Podcast with Connor. We'll see you next time.